Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast, the podcast where we talk about football and all of its many facets, and also the podcast where we don't get beaten 4-0 after we've just won the league. I am joined by Caleb Rhodes. Hello, hello. And I think it's important to announce we wish a very happy birthday to our third co-host, Nathan Strauss. Nathan, happy birthday. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. We are now all uh, legal adults which is weird to say, but thank you both very much. Nathan, what was your first legal drink? It was a Castle Island beer. Uh, And then today I went and visited the excellent people at Total Wine and Spirits in Shrewsbury. And a very kind associate named Livy Porter helped me pick out a selection of local ciders that I will be partaking in uh, this evening as I play some video games. Something to dull the pain of a terrible Arsenal season, I guess. Honestly, I love a good cider. People people kind of give ciders a bit of a hard time sometimes. It's very it's a very refreshing beverage, especially on like a humid summer week. Gentlemen, we're approaching I think it's it's starting to become more evident that we are slowly ebbing our way towards the end of these big restarted seasons, highlighted by a result yesterday that was a bit lopsided. A what could have been a title decider not just two weeks back. It was uh, Manchester City 4, Liverpool 0. Gents, what did you make of this game, especially after Liverpool were uh, paraded onto the pitch with the ceremonial guard of yes, honor? And I think, and we have to give a quick shout out to Bernardo Silva, who has, you know, the most dispassionate guard of honor I've ever seen. I don't think he even clapped his hands, like not even a golf clap. He He was looking rather upset, actually. Um, I, I actually think, you know, Nick, you'll probably say this game doesn't matter at all. And I think it doesn't really matter for Liverpool. Um, I didn't expect them to win. I didn't expect them to be super sharp. Um, and I think Mane especially kind of summed up the Liverpool team playing like he had never played professional soccer before at several moments. Although it should be said, Liverpool did create a few chances early and this game could have been very different. But I actually thought Guardiola played this game so perfectly. He drafted in, you know, Phil Foden and Eric Garcia, both young players who have been in decent form, which gave them some cover, you know, if they lost. And so essentially any result was going to be good for Guardiola. And this result especially, I think, will give them a good boost as they go into the Champions League in what could be their last chance to get a Champions League for a few years. And so I think it's actually an excellent, very important result for Guardiola, even if it doesn't really mean anything to Liverpool. Yeah, and at the same time, I was a little surprised that Klopp named basically a full-strength starting 11 for Liverpool, knowing that his players have likely not necessarily been the most match-fit over the last week. There have been certainly some some parties and whatnot, uh, and going up against you know maybe your greatest uh, non-geographic rivals of the last few years it might have behooved Klopp to actually play some of his youngsters and rotate with the understanding that a loss against a city team that has nothing to play for uh, is 
better if you're playing the youth players like Pep did. But at the same time, I think maybe one of the brightest players in the entire Premier League since the uh, since the restart has been Phil Foden. He's just looked absolutely phenomenal. And uh, in my eyes, he is the David Silva replacement in waiting. City uh, do not need to sign another player in that spot uh, if I'm Pep Guardiola because Foden has shown so far that he is just a brilliant player. And despite the fact that we've been made to wait for Pep to play him consistently, I think he's been well worth the wait. Yeah, I think as far as the guard of honor goes, Klopp just wanted to show respect to the team that won the league and that first 11 was going to be the 11 that got that respect from Manchester City and were able to walk on the field in that kind of regal traditional manner. So I think that was mostly the reason why he picked a full strength 11 uh, at the beginning of this game. And we saw that he was kind of liberal with the substitutions. And then I also think Jurgen Klopp in a quote today said that Liverpool had nothing to win and City had nothing to lose. And I think the game certainly reflected that statement. This is the perfect sort of hungover performance for Liverpool. Uh, the fact that when you're hungover, you know, you get out of bed and you have about 15 to 20 minutes of energy before everything starts going downhill again. And Liverpool certainly lost the impetus to mobilize halfway through the game. They weren't sharp, as Caleb said, Sadio Mane. And I think Mo Salah isn't drawing a lot of criticism, but I actually thought Salah was quite terrible, aside from his shot that hit the post uh, within the first 15 minutes. I think the only people who have covered themselves in, in a lot of glory following this performance were Jordan Henderson and Genie Wijnaldum and glory and air, massive air quotes because there's not a lot of glory that can come out of losing 4-0. This was just a, it was a performance in which Liverpool haven't had a lot of time to prepare for Man City. Uh, their media duties have been twofold or sometimes even threefold in the case of Hendo and Van Dyke and Salah. Obviously, you never want to lose 4-0 and that's always going to sting a bit, especially when it comes from your main rivals in the past couple of years that are Man City, and especially when Raheem Sterling absolutely just does a job on you. And as, as a Liverpool fan, I hate seeing Sterling be successful on the pitch, not to say that he's not a brilliant human being off the pitch. Yeah, it was a game that it, it's going to sting for a little bit, and it's going to dominate the headlines because a four, uh, your new champions losing 4-0 is always going to dominate the headlines. But at the end of the day, it's not. it doesn't mean terribly much. And when you're not sharp against a team like Man City, they're always going to punish you in a really extreme way. And they got punished yesterday for not being totally at 100%. Yeah, I thought, I, I think it really can't go overstated as well how bad Andrew Robertson was. Uh, I think that might have been his worst game in a Liverpool kit since like his first two weeks with the club a few years ago. I think Robertson and the other player that's drawing a lot of criticism quite publicly is Joe Gomez. I think he got absolutely isolated by Raheem Sterling and got a little bit exposed for not being quite up to the level that some Liverpool fans think he's at. I think he still has a little bit of time to uh, get up to his full potential and he got a little bit. Yesterday was a bad day for Joe Gomez. Not the only Joe for whom yesterday was a bad day, but Jose Mourinho also uh, drawing the ire of some Spurs fans following uh, Spurs' heavy 3-1 defeat against Sheffield United in Sheffield's first victory post-restart. And this was a game where Spurs, yes, they got hard done by by a, a pretty bad VAR decision, but they really just got taken to town by a much more physical Sheffield United team. Where do you think things have been going wrong for the Spurs side? And what does this mean for the top four race? This this is such a disaster of a game because Sheffield have also been terrible. Sheffield, you're coming off a big loss to um, 
Manchester United in the league last week, a loss to Arsenal in the FA Cup. And they've just, I mean, have they even picked up points since returning? Uh, maybe they have a draw here or there. This is definitely their first win, though. And I think it's just, uh, you just look at the players that Mourinho left on the bench. Deli Ali, club record signing Tangi and Dombele, who Mourinho says, you know, he still has a place for him in the squad, but hasn't really given him a place in the squad. Vertonghen and Alderweireld, both on the bench. Even Harry Winks, who I don't personally like or rate that much, but that has been a relatively present figure. Doesn't even make it off the bench. I don't know. This We've talked about it before, how this isn't Mourinho's squad, but I think that this result is actually fairly unacceptable, um, especially considering they had 68% possession. They outshot them. Sheffield just... Sheffield only had seven shots. Five of them were on target. Three of them went in. I mean, this is just a calamity on both ends of the field for Tottenham and really throws their whole team into doubt because now they're even below Arsenal um, in the table, which is kind of shocking considering how much we've been talking about how bad Arsenal have been. Caleb, you're absolutely right in that this is a completely unacceptable result, especially against a Sheffield United side. Seem to have lost their defensive composure and organization in the past couple of weeks and being exposed for not for playing above what many people believe would have been their level at the beginning of the season. They've obviously exceeded expectations, but they've kind of come plummeting back to earth since the restart. But this was just, it was shocking how little Spurs were able to create with the likes of Kane, Mora, Son, and Lamella and Bergvine on the pitch. And even Giovanni Lacelso, who's not really been impactful since coming into the team. So this is a team that's obviously not a Mourinho side quite yet. They don't have that really reliable defensive midfielder uh, to sweep things up in front of the back four so their more flair players can go forward and attack. But I also don't think Mourinho has cultivated an exceptional relationship with his top stars. I don't think Harry Kane hasn't really come out publicly and said anything to make me believe that he has a phenomenal relationship with Mourinho. Neither is Son, neither is Mura. Uh, Bergwijn has been good in spots here and there, but he's not been totally consistent. And he's only, what, 21, 22 years old? And Davidson Sanchez, man, he got, him and Dyer got absolutely exposed yesterday. Exposed like a celebrity's iCloud being hacked. Like it was that bad for those two on the pitch yesterday. So I think Mourinho needs to bring in some experienced, you know, Mourinho talent into the side, like a really, really solid ball playing center back and a defensive midfielder who is no nonsense if he's going to get the best out of the squad. But I think he also has to focus on man management, which has kind of let him down recently, especially at Manchester United and his last little bit at Chelsea in order to put things right here. Yeah, I don't think the Spurs team is necessarily built to support their main star in Harry Kane. Like, this, I, I think many Spurs fans would say that Hunman Son has actually been their team's best attacker because he's able to drop deep and get the ball and actually make goals for himself. Like, I think he's scored at least two goals this year where he's, like, picked up the ball, you know, around the halfway line and just done and gone on to score individually brilliant goals. Harry Kane just hasn't really been given the service that he needs to be the kind of clinical fox-in-the-box player that uh, we expected him. I also, I know that obviously he's been struggling for fitness for a while and that the spring is definitely... Uh, an area of concern for him in the past in terms of his uh, ability to stay healthy, but he hasn't really looked totally fit uh, to me. Like he just hasn't, he's lacked a bit of sharpness that I think we've seen other players uh, regain 
after the first match or two. Uh, and so I Even do. Harry, that, Harry Kane hasn't looked super fit. Yeah, sorry. Harry Kane hasn't hasn't looked uh, all that sharp since the restart. And we knew that he was out with those injuries beforehand. But we've seen other players who started off slowly find their way back into form. But he does seem to still be, you know, a step slow. And part of that is probably due to the team that is set up behind him. But he's certainly been one of the bigger underperformers so far. And with this loss and with Arsenal leapfrogging Spurs um, by that one point, it makes that North London Derby that's coming up a week from Sunday all the more crucial um, as if we assume that City are out of the running for a European spot, the cutoff for Europe will be that eight spot this year, I believe, uh, depending on who wins the Champions League. So uh, with Spurs in ninth and Arsenal in eighth, that will be one of the biggest fixtures in the Project Restart era. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing with Spurs, not only since the restart, but for this entire season, has been just how important Christian Eriksen above any other player, has been for this team for the past half decade. And I look at the 11 they put out and even the players on the bench, and they don't really have the same type of creative player that Christian Eriksen was. And I think that is part of the reason why Kane seems a little slow, is that he was being fed absolutely amazing, perfect balls um, from Eriksen all the time. And playing Bergvine as a cam is just a totally different thing. And even Deli Ali just is not the same type of technical visionary player that Ericsson was. And I don't know who they buy to replace that exactly, but I think it's a bit of Kane being slow on the uptake from injury and whatnot, but also just a complete reshifting of the burdens of creative play on this team that uh, Tottenham just haven't been able to figure out. I think they might have hoped that Giovanni Lo Celso could have stepped up to the plate in terms of chance creation but he only created or he only had one key pass in the entire game against Sheffield United yesterday and it's he, he's gotten I think the most public praise from Mourinho since he took over and he's definitely a player with a lot of quality and maybe he'll improve in his next season but he's being played as a in a double pivot which might not be the most ideal role for him maybe his exploits or his two exploits can be shown higher up the pitch. But yeah, Bergwijn, I don't think, is the answer in that attacking midfield position. And against Manchester United, Mourinho tried to play Lamella in that number 10, who certainly, I don't think, has shown the quality to be even in and around the Spurs team in the past couple of years or so. So I think they definitely need to buy a creative midfielder or a number 10 alongside that defensive midfielder and that center back in the transfer window. Yeah, it's going to be a really big window for them. And I was looking at the Premier League goal charts as well. And, you know, Harry Kane is currently 14th uh, in the table in terms of goal scoring. And uh, they only have Spurs only have two players in the top 30 uh, in terms of Premier League goals. And that's really concerning for a team that's uh, trying to push into those uh, into that top four race. And we, we talked, we've, we've hypothesized for a while that this Spurs team peaked with their Champions League final appearance. And given that Daniel Levy has been notoriously uh, tight-fisted in terms of the transfer market and that he broke that trend last summer, I wonder, I'm really hesitant in my belief that Spurs are going to be able to financially back Mourinho this summer in a post-COVID transfer market situation. You know, this, this really could end up being a perfect storm for them in as much as they have an aging squad uh, and possibly not enough money to necessarily fill those gaps. And Eric Dyer, even the conversion of Dyer to a full-time center back, 
is a little risky just because I don't think he necessarily has the stature that Mourinho would like from uh, a center back pairing. So we'll see where they can uh, end up improving their squad this summer. Well, I think the crazy thing is, Nathan, is that like we've talked about this so many times where we don't know exactly like there's there's players where it's like you look you look around and and it's like Arsenal need to buy a center back and they need to buy X center back that they're linked to. You know, there's several teams where it's like Manchester United were linked to Bruno Fernandes. He was the perfect player for them. They went out and got him. Everyone knew like it was no big secret that like United were in the market for Bruno and that he would fill a niche for them that they absolutely needed to fill. I think for Spurs, like we don't know exactly who they're targeting, what areas they're targeting in order to improve because they already tried to address that in the summer of 2019 and it looks like they haven't done so. And it's not like their squad is terrible, right? Their squad is, has a lot of quality in it, but I think it's quality that Mourinho is yet to untap. And it's whether or not he's able to do a little man management magic as he did with Deli Ali when he first took over. I remember in those first three games, Deli Ali was a completely different player because of uh, some work that Mourinho had done with him on the pitch in the man management capacity. So this team isn't bad, nor is it like super, you know, to the point where like they need to start thinking about replacing players outright. I think Mourinho just needs to get the best out of this team that he has now because if Spurs don't make Europe, that's a real disaster. Yeah, I'm going to say the same thing that I said about Arsenal like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, is that Mourinho just needs to play his best players, right? And I think we see a lot with Mourinho teams, usually in season two or season three, where he'll just choose to drop big name players for some rando. Um, And that's his form of man management, which is essentially like shaming people into submission. Um, But I, I just think that like when you come on like halfway through the season, and you're in a situation like this where you just need to like, get together points. Like you just have to play Ndombele because he's just a better player than Sissoko. Maybe he's not quite as good defensively, but like in terms of his movement, is just better. You have to play Deli Ali in Cam because he's just the only natural player to fit that position. And you just have to play all of your best players all the time. So that means dropping Sanchez and Dyer for Vertonghen and Alderweireld. Um, Yo, I just had a vision of jo- Jose Mourinho as like the shame nun from Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, and is like walking through the streets of London and like Mourinho has got like the bell and he's like, shame. Dude, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, the Portuguese accent. Shame. 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 It's, it's, it's in Dombele. It's like Iker Casillas. It's um, Pogba. Pogba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say that's actually hilarious. But but one thing I think Spurs should take heart in is that considering Man U have actually like figured out their shit, I don't think Kane's going anywhere. I don't know who the hell's buying him. I don't see a buyer, so they can yeah. keep their man. Yeah, I think they're pretty lucky uh, given that the rest of the soccer world is going to be equally as hard hit um, by COVID. Like. I think if Real Madrid hadn't signed Luka Jovic last summer or if Benzema hadn't suddenly reverted to being like 28-year-old Benzema, you could definitely see uh, Los Blancos trying to make him their marquee signing as has been rumored for a number of years now, um, especially given that they might even have tried to use Gareth Bale as a make-weight in that deal. But yeah, I mean... Harry Kane, he's still, he's remarkably only 26 years old. Like for some reason in my mind, he was like two or three years older than that. But, you know, he's closing in on his 200th career league goal for uh, for Spurs in 
just under 280 games for them, I believe, which is just a ludicrous goal scoring record. And uh, he certainly, it, it looks like he'll be spending the prime of his career uh, with Spurs. Uh, I also just wanted to, to go back to the transfers that they made last summer real quick and say that even though Ndombele and Lo Celso haven't worked out for them yet, I think it's a good example of how sometimes making the right transfers just doesn't pan out. And I think that something that I think a lot of executives and managers get a lot of uh, criticism for are these transfers that don't pan out. But when these when that transfer was announced, pretty much everyone was like, oh, this makes sense. Spurs just signed a high-profile creative attacking midfielder coming off of two good seasons. Uh, and they signed one of the better box-to-box midfielders that had underseen, uh, who, who had been seen to really emerge in the French League. Kind of like when Chelsea signed Bakayoko back after the that Monaco title-winning campaign, people were like, oh, this is a transfer that just makes sense. And sometimes they just don't pan out for whatever reason. So I kind of, I, I feel for Spurs fans who have had to see their players sort of go in and out of form and in and out of the starting 11. But I do think that if Mourinho can give them consistent game time, they'll be able to uh, see if they have long-term potential in this team. Yeah, I think you're right about the transfer thing. I will say that, and maybe Ndombele is the time when the soccer world will finally learn the lesson. Just like never trust the hype around French center midfielders. Like always try to wait one more year. Like you can name a player almost every, so Bakayoko is a great example. I'd even say Kondogvia is another good example. You can go a little further back, Yanim Via slightly different player, a little more of a center midfielder rather than a box-to-box type. But I, I don't know. I, I think every year we see like... Benjamin another... Stambouli. Benjamin Stambouli. Etienne Capou. Etienne Capou. Morgan Schneiderlin. Morgan Schneiderlin. Like the list actually goes on and on. But my, my main point is there's actually like a pretty strong track record of like if there's a 21 or 22-year-old midfielder that seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be probably true. Probably is. Right. Yeah. And like even the the even Ligue 1's biggest exports, I would say, in the last couple of years, haven't been French, like Bernardo Silva. I'll even throw out some more strange players. Joshua Gilavogi, he's French, right? <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. French. Right when he went to Atletico Madrid, terrible. Thomas move. Lamar, Thomas Lamar, different player. Jury's, jury's still out on Lamar, I think. Oh, Younes Yunes <laughs> who went from winning Ligue 1's uh, Young Player of the Year to now playing. Uh, for Al Ali, I believe in Saudi Arabia. Doesn't he? He doesn't play for Galatasaray anymore. I think he got transferred out, but I'm not sure. But anyways, the point that the point is that the fact that we don't know that says a lot about that. So <laughs> true. <laughs> okay, well, moving on from from Tottenham and the, the plight of the shame nun himself, Jose Mourinho. I think we should talk about another London team that slipped up big time away to West Ham. Gents, what did you make of Chelsea's late capitula- capitulation? away to the hammers of West Ham and Moyes' first win since three start. I've never seen a team look less interested in winning a game than that Chelsea side. They were, they, again, another really confusing refereeing decision uh, in that one. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about VAR's uh, latest problems in a bit as well. But West Ham turning in a surprising performance, winning 3-2 and putting themselves closer and closer to safety uh they're now three points out of the relegation zone and ahead of Watford for 16th right now uh Chelsea who had just decided the title for Liverpool 
you know, five days prior, uh, came out with uh, an interesting, you know, semi-rotated lineup. They started Tammy Abraham. They started Willian, who ended up contributing two goals. But this is just a team that never looked like they were going to come out on top of this one. Even though statistically they dominated West Ham, I thought looked the better side for the entire day. Thomas Suchek scored twice, uh, really, even though the first one was chalked out. They were, uh, I thought Keppa looked particularly abysmal. And um, I think that Chelsea now have some real questions to answer. We know that they've made some signings that are going to be coming in soon in the form of Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner. But really, it was their defensive pairing of Christensen and Rudiger that looked quite poor. And Keppa Arizabalaga continues to have questions around him between the sticks. So where do you think Chelsea need to build most following this defeat? They were bad. It was bad. I mean, they just got all of West Ham's goals pretty much were really good counterattacking goals, probably best exemplified by Yarmolenko at the end there, um, who just took advantage of literally Marcos Alonso. I don't even know where he was. He probably wasn't even on the field. Marcos Alonso was gone. Um, I, I don't know. I think this Chelsea team just needs to show a little bit more self-assurance and I know they just came off of a big win but they just seemed like off all day despite William playing well and you could tell Lampard Lampard was pretty upset by this result um, looking at him sort of post game and I think that you know if you're having title aspirations going forward and most of your transfers aren't on the defensive end they're more offensive then you need your defense to be better than it was today. Um, and I think that starts with finding a new left back. Like, I don't mean to harp on Marcus Alonso too long, but I really think he is essentially a Sunderland player who scores like three or four goals from left back a year and can shoot free kicks. And so people kind of forgive him for being a bad defender and a sort of mediocre professional. I think this Chelsea team, they're kind of perfectly imperfect in the way that they mesh talent and inexperience. And I think that inexperience bleeds from players like Tomori, uh, Pulisic. Yeah, I mean, I think Caleb's right where they need self-assurance, but I also think they need a little bit of time to brew in some some of the younger players. Antonio Rudiger, like he's not a prime. He's not his prime as far as center backs go. And he was particularly awful for that uh, last minute goal as well and allowed him to just completely do him to cut in. So I think there needs to be a little bit more consistency that develops with Chelsea. I think they also suffer from the fact that there's no real vocal leader on the pitch like John Terry was for so long, like Frank Lampard was for so long. So Lampard needs to find a way because we have to remember that he's also pretty, he's a pretty inexperienced coach, especially at the Premier League level. He knows the Premier League from a player perspective, but it's going to take him more than one season to get up to speed as a consistent coach in this division. And I think he needs to find a way to compensate for the fact that there's no real, no real leadership on the pitch for Chelsea at the moment. There's a lot of talented players out there, but I don't think there's anyone who's like a John Terry or a Frank Lampard from the leadership vocal player perspective. And so he's going to need to find a way to compensate for that in his tactics. That being said, I still think that Chelsea are going to end up finishing third. I think Leicester have slipped quite a bit recently. And given that we're raring in on the end of the season, I think that Chelsea will be able to kind of nestle in. Dude, Leicester looking real bad. Brendan Broge is going to Broge. Brendan's going to Brendan. That man, his defenses have always been so 
inconsistent throughout his career. And man, are Leicester starting to show some cracks. I don't really know what to say. Like Leicester, it's just so shocking. The fact that they were riding so high. And it just goes to show you that like Brendan Rodgers knows how to bottle momentum throughout the entirety of a campaign. And then coronavirus comes and completely squashes any momentum that the Foxes have right now. And this is, they've, coronavirus has come and completely squashed the momentum of Leicester as a town, as a city, as a township, because they're one of like the bubbles in the UK that has been hit the worst uh, by COVID-19. So we wish everyone in Leicestershire to keep safe and sound throughout this time. But I think they've been completely, I mean, they've just been awful, like truly, truly terrible. And they don't look inspired at all creatively like they were before the break. And I think they've been absolutely hit the hardest uh, them and Sheffield United by yeah. the momentum stop. Yeah, they do not have an easy run-in uh, to the end of the season as well. So far, they've drawn to Leicester and Brighton 1-0 and uh, 1-1 and 0-0. They then lost to Chelsea in the FA Cup before losing to Everton two days ago. And then they still have to face Arsenal, Spurs, Sheffield, and United. So those are all teams that they are battling with for that final, uh, for that Europa League uh, or Champions League positioning. So right now there's a 10-point gap between uh, Burnley in 10th and Leicester in 3rd, and it's entirely possible that we still see a lot of uh, flip-flopping in there. And we saw Brendan Rodgers try to rotate a little bit to get the most out of his players. We saw him start Pryat uh, and Mark Albrighton to get a little diff- something different going on the wings, but they just have not been creating chances whatsoever. I think Really, the the injury to Ricardo Pereira that's kept him out, uh, that's going to keep him out for the rest of the season, has been pretty crucial because James Justin is just a championship level player for me at right back, and Ricardo Pereira's ability to to, to link up between the defense and that sort of forward line of five that they play is crucial, and they've really missed that of late, and uh, it's entirely possible that we see them sinking below teams like Chelsea United and a team that's managed to come out hot from the break in, in Wolves. Yeah, I think that... Wait, did you say that they lost to Everton? They did. Yeah. They lost 2 under Everton. Oh, you got to shut up. I mean, like, it's over. It's, you can't be losing to Everton, man. Like, you, that's not... That ain't it. Dude, it was over early also. It was like Richarlison scored in the 10th, then Sigurdsson oh, scored a penalty God. in the 16th. No, it's over for them. It's done. They're out. They're getting out of that top four. No, I, I think... You can't, you, can't be, you can't be out here losing to the top... To Ever- Dude, Everton suck, man. They're like they're, we could talk about hey, they, they just beat the third place team in the league. I mean, um, no, I think I think it's going to come down to that like final game of the season. I think Leicester versus Man U, um, July twenty sixth, ten a.m. Eastern, is going to be a huge match with huge implications, not only for those two teams in the top four, but also many of the teams around them. I think that's it's that's going to be so one sided though if Leicester consider if Leicester continue this run of poor form and they can't find a way to rejig their system to uh, help them get back some of that momentum that they lost. And United have just been flying high because Fernandez and Pogba have combined so well to open up space for the rest of their pacey team. I, think, I still think, man, you are playing so, so well right now. And it has a bit of a Ole's at the wheel kind of vibe to it. And I think they're going to fly a little too close to the sun and start to fall off. And so my, my hope, if, if I was the... Uh, from uh, Hunger Games, what's the guy who like controls the everything? President Snow? No, 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 no. But like the guy who like makes the the Hunger Game itself. Hamish, dude. I I don't know. I haven't. I have not seen the. No, Hunger no, 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 no. No, not Hamish. No, like the the title of the dude who 
the game maker. The game is it really the game maker? Okay, for the okay. starving man. I don't know. I've, I've not seen the. <laughs> I've not read the books or seen the movies. Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, Seneca Crane, the head game maker. Okay, if I were the game maker of the Premier League and my intentions were not to have them battle to the death literally, but kind of figuratively, I'd love for Man U to like win a few more games and then lose like the two leading up to the final day to set up an epic showdown. That's what I would do. But I'm Dude, not the Seneca, game maker. Did you say his name was Seneca Crane? Seneca Crane. Dude, Seneca Crane sounds like a, a creative Croatian attacking midfielder that Spurs could sign <laughs> to uh, bolster their front line. Dude, yes, Jose Mourinho teams up with Seneca Crane. <laughs> it's the shame, the shame, not in Seneca Crane. <laughs> well, that's funny too because a, uh, a lot of Game of Thrones was filmed in Croatia. Indeed. So it's all coming together. I think we're we're unearthing something here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shame, not in Seneca Crane. Winter is coming uh, <laughs> at Tottenham, and winter certainly might be coming for the Foxes, who will need to improve mightily if they're going to finish in the top four. I want to transition to La Liga because there's so much juiciness coming out of Spain right now from a narrative perspective. And let's talk about first and foremost Papa Griezmann, Antoine Griezmann's dad, coming out swinging against Kike Setien's comments about why he didn't put on or why he didn't bring on Antoine Griezmann before say, the 89th minute in that crucial 2-2 draw at home to Atletico Madrid. Caleb, what are you made of the Griezmann fallout and Setien fallout following the unfortunate uh, two points dropped in that one? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough situation. I mean, Setien was at a moment where this was a do-or-die game uh, for Barcelona. And as much as, you know, you want to rehabilitate your, you know, 100 million euro purchase... Um, you also want to just like optimize for winning the game. But unfortunately, we kind of lost on both counts, um, considering we dropped points and essentially now Madrid are just going to go to the league pretty easily. And we've probably permanently damaged uh, Griezmann's confidence. I mean, it's it's just sort of embarrassing in a lot of ways. That It's funny that both Jao Felix and Griezmann didn't start in this game. And it's funny that we're sad tragicomic that Griezmann only came on in the 89th minute in a must-win game against his former team um, who he was talismanic for for the better part of the 2010s so I, I don't know it's tough I'm not really sure what the solution is as I said we've talked about a lot how this Barcelona team is just an utter disaster and you know Ricky Puig was honestly the best player other than Messi in that game but Ricky Puig is not enough to push us over the edge. Um, and it's a little bit emblematic that we're looking to that uh, as a way to save our season. Nathan, do you think Setien is the person to manage all these egos going forward? Because we've heard that his assistant coach isn't particularly popular with the players, and neither is he in the way that he's dealt with egos such as Messi and Griezmann and Piquet, especially in the media recently. So do you think he's the guy going forward for Barcelona, especially with this many popular figures still in and around the first team setup? I, I said this last week, but I don't think he was ever supposed to be the guy in the first place and that much of his failings can be accounted for by poor decision-making from higher-ups amongst the Barcelona elite in terms of uh, the signings that they've made, the financial position that the club has been in, and how they've... Uh, handled player power issues in the past and 
obviously, I think this all really does go back to Bartomeu. And uh, we, we talked about this a lot last week, so I won't go into it too much now. But Barcelona, in their attempt to capitalize on the last good years of Messi, you know, I, I gave a time frame of five years that, you know, could be longer, could be shorter than that. Reports came out this week that said that Messi is unsettled and now wants to leave on a free transfer following the conclusion of the season after next, which I'm pretty sure is just a way for the Messi camp to uh, try to force some uh, structural change at the club. So, no, I don't think Kike Setien has done a, a, a great job, but I also think that he was given an unenviable task um, while also not really getting any of the backing that he needed. He was sort of like, uh, it, it reminds me of when Chelsea appointed uh, Gus Hiddink as interim manager after that, maybe what was it, 2014-15 season, where he knew he had a job to do but was never really backed enough to do it. I also think that we should talk about how bad Diego Costa's game was because I think it's pretty hilarious. He had a spectacular backheel flick of an own goal in the 10th minute before missing a penalty and then having it retaken and then scoring. He ended up with a six point, a 5.7. He also got booked, but really sort of sums up where Diego Costa is at in his career at this point. It was just a bad game. I mean, the goals were an own goal and three penalties. It was just, it was just dismal. And yeah, it was, it was just a bad game. It was, I don't even, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. Although part of me, part of me is hoping right now that we're about to see a kind of like Roberto Di Matteo moment with Barcelona this year, which probably is an unfair comparison because I think this Barcelona team has to be better than that Chelsea team was. And frankly, it's a little insulting even to compare the two. But I'm just hoping that we're going to get some really improbable turn of events and who cares where we finish in the league, but we're going to end up with the UCL at the end of the year. That's like pretty much the only thing that's going to keep me going right now, now that we've just kind of given away the league without any fight at all. I think it's going to be really telling what the results of the next Barcelona election are as far as what the direction of the club is. Because you'd hope that Bartomeu gets deposed and then Xavi feels comfortable enough to say, well, it's a new era at Barcelona. Let me usher in the new, you know, the new brand of Barcelona football and be the guy to help transition his former teammate Messi out of the club and build upon players like Puig and Ansu Fati. But I think it's going to really, as Nathan was hitting on, it's going to really hinge on whether or not Bartomeu sticks around the club for any longer, as he's already seeming to uh, be putting holes into a fast sinking ship at the Blaugrana. But gents, let's move our attention towards Madrid, where they were tightly contested nil-nil against Tetafe up until Danny Carvajal making a run into the box, getting tripped up. And who else but the clutch king himself, Sergio Ramos, putting the ball into the back of the net from the spot to get Madrid a vital, vital three points against a very good Hitafe team that is sitting in sixth place right now. But uh, what do you make of the the clutchness of Madrid rearing its head once again? I mean, what we're seeing from Ramos this season is just like the definition of a captain, right? Like Ramos is their second top scorer in the league with nine goals. He scored the winning penalty today. I think people have this perception that Ramos can't take penalties um, after that terrible penalty kick in the Champions League a few years ago. Um, 
But it's like that ball is still it's still flying around the globe. Like I saw it pass my house an hour ago. Right. Like that ball is still in orbit. Right. And it has lived long in the memory of many soccer fans. Yeah. But since that moment, I mean, he hasn't missed a penalty and he's taken a lot of them. Like since Ronaldo left the club, Ramos has been the main penalty taker. And I think when you have players like Benzema, like Isco, like Asensio, like Hazard, like Kreuz even, like so many players who can also take penalties to have Ramos be the one I think really says that he is that excellent. And I think that kind of leadership beating against Getafe, who are, you know, the plucky up and coming Europa League quality side, um, the small team from Madrid. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm very impressed with the resolve of this team, um, despite the fact that it's coming at the cost of Barcelona's championship. Yeah. And Ramos even scored a free kick against Mallorca last week as well which is not something that I knew that he had in his repertoire. But yeah, I mean, as much as I dislike Ramos on the field, I think that his performances this year have shown a real maturity in his game, uh, especially when Madrid have somewhat of an injury crisis now in that center back role after Varane went off injured uh, in that game. Dude, I cannot think of how many times Sergio Ramos has come up with the big goal or the big moment in important matches for Real Madrid. I think definitely the most iconic one was the 90th minute header that he scored in the Champions League final in 2014 to steer Madrid in extra time, after which they absolutely battered that uh, plucky Atletico Madrid team that had won La Liga. But I cannot, I, we could literally sit here and do an entire pod about how clutch Sergio Ramos is. And I think there are just certain athletes who have the clutch gene. I, I think about Tom Brady, who has that clutch gene. I think about, you know, players like you could definitely say that like LeBron James has that clutch gene. And I, I don't think Ramos is like the LeBron or the Tom Brady of soccer in any way. But I certainly think he shares a trait in the elite athletes that they're able to come up with a singular moment and they're able to drag their teams across the finish line in tight situations. And I think Ramos certainly is one of the players in world football who embodies the spirit of the clutch gene. Yeah, I mean, so with that goal, he has 11 goals this season for the second year in a row. It's the third time in the last four years he's hit double digits in goal scoring. He now has 95 goals in his career for Real Madrid. This is a player that has... 170 caps for Spain. Um, And I think it's especially rare for the clutch player to be a defensive player in in the sense that it's not often that you wait for the center back necessarily to be the one to always score that goal. And in a lot of ways, I feel like his clutch goals that you mentioned in the Champions League are somewhat overshadowed by Ronaldo then scoring like a brace in extra time. Um, and and maybe, maybe this is slightly going too far, but I think a lot of the substance of the case for why Ronaldo is one of the best players ever is purely because of the performance of Sergio Ramos. So Real Madrid looking like they're on their way to claiming the La Liga title. That, I think, concludes this week's episode of Corner Kick. Happy birthday once again to our very own Nathan Strauss. Thank you very much. I've been Nick Vinden. I'm Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. Shame. And we will see you all next time.